Come here. Let's show Auntie Grace your collar. Say, I got a pretty flower. Oh. And I jingle. Bless her. She's so pretty. It's called a fashion collar, so it does oh. absolutely nothing for anything else. It um, doesn't glow, it doesn't shine. But she looks cute. She's pretty. She's pretty. Um, there was a body found near Nelson County here in Kentucky, um, near where Crystal Rogers went missing. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know who that is, what are you doing here? That was episode one. Catch up, man. Catch up. Um, don't listen backwards. And I really hope it's her. Um, we have an inside source that suggests that it may actually be her. Um... And it's a very reliable source. Very reliable source, but we cannot name names. Um, that it might actually be her, and I, I'm like heartbroken for her family, but I hope that they get the closure that they desperately need, and I hope that there's evidence. I hope there's something linking yeah. whoever did it. I agree. Like, the closure itself is one thing that is going to be 100% the best thing the family could ever get this year. Yeah. Um, But if there was evidence to point to who did it, that that would would just... be better because they wouldn't just get, like, that kind of closure. They would still get... They would get justice. And I hope Mm -hmm. that they do. I hope they they do, too. Well, regardless, if it is her... If it is. Mm. If it is, wink, wink. If it is, wink, um, wink. Um, if it isn't, then there's some more investigating that needs to be done. I mean, and the original articles did say that they were, um, that it could, if they were potential human remains. So It could be an alligator for all we know. Not in Kentucky, <laughs> but. <laughs> could be something. But, yeah. Kangaroo. Again, not in Kentucky. They sent their remains off to Quantico, which is why I feel like our source may be very reliable. Yeah. Where's Quantico? Quantico. It's the FBI. Oh. Yeah. That tells you how much I know. Oh, Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Quantico is like FBI headquarters. Well. (laughs) Hey, I'm Grace and that's Rachel. Hey, I'm Mitz and that's Misfortunes. Oh. <laughs> it's so true though. It's still it's so true. Oh. Oh, all the myths. We are as we said, myths and misfortunes. We are each yes. a myth, a myth fortune. We are yes. the myths. Today I am the misfortune. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are in Washington DC. Oh my god. Oh my god. So, my sources are Wikipedia, localhistories.org, and a YouTube video titled Washington, D.C., History in Five Minutes by User Past to Future. 
Uh, YouTube. 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 So, all the so's. The land surrounding the Potomac River, where D.C. is currently sitting, was once inhabited by the Nakashtonk people. I think uh, I said that right the first time. I didn't say it right this time. Um, unfortunately, it's a learning curve. Learning curve. Also, lack of memory. Unfortunately, conflicts with European colonists forced many of the native tribes out in 1699. Surprise, surprise. I'm shocked. I am shook. And (laughs) (laughs) that is unfortunately all that was told in the sources that I used. Um, Like I told you, I'm sure that, you know, actual scholars could find a whole heck of a lot more because they have more sources, more credible sources. Mm -hmm. And we have the internet, which people can make stuff up on the internet. (laughs) Yes, yes, very much so. Yes, all the yes. Okay, so... On January 23rd, 1788, James Madison, who, for those like me, forget American history, was one of the founding fathers, mm-hmm. argued in his Federalist number 43... Which was the 43rd essay within the Federalist Papers that the new federal government would need authority over a national capital in order to provide for its own maintenance and safety. No, stop! All the distractions today, goodness. Um, Basically, that federal government needs its own little space so that it can help govern the rest of the space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... In July of 1790, the Congress passed the Residence Act, which approved the creation of the nation's capital on the Potomac River. And the exact location was to be determined by none other than George Washington. And this is where I mentioned that I spelled George G. Rogue. G. Rogue. The states of Maryland and West Virginia actually donated sections of their land, and thus the 100 square miles between the two states became the Federal District of Columbia. So, also, I do have to mention right here, I always thought the District of Columbia was in Canada. I always, I genuinely, genuinely thought as a child that that is where all of the Colombian immigrants came. I thought that's where they all lived. Because that makes total sense. As a child, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, yes, okay, I get it. As a child, that makes sense. I think for me, the reason I thought it was Canada was because District of Columbia. In the U.S., yeah. we really don't have districts. We have yeah. states and cities within states, not really Not like provinces districts. and yeah. Like yeah. So my mind was like, oh, what's Canadian? That's, yeah. That's the American education system for you, folks. Oh, yes. An American public school education. Rough. Very rough. On August 24th and 25th in 1814, British forces invaded the capital during the War of 1812. Again, (laughs) for those who did not hear, they invaded in 1814 in the War of 1812. A whole two years later. Well, it's like like COVID-19. Right? You think it's only going to last two weeks? Nope, it's been a whole six months now. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you call two weeks? A, a year? 
Yep. Yep. Pretty okay. much. This is the longest two weeks I've ever had. I think that's a fortnight. <laughs> yes, it, it's a fortnight. Many buildings were destroyed and burned down, including the Capitol, Treasury, and the White House. Yikes. Thankfully, they were able to rebuild a lot of the buildings that were destroyed. In 1846, Congress agreed to return the portion of the district that was donated by Virginia. Right here, I do want to mention that at this point, the part of the district that was donated by Virginia was worried that the federal government would take away their rights to own slaves. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. So they actually wanted to secede from the District of Columbia, and that's when Congress agreed, fine, you can have your portion back, whatever. Then in 1861, with the outbreak of the American Civil War, the population of the district rose notably. This included large populations of freed slaves. Yes. Thanks to the Emancipation Act the following years, slavery was ended in the District of Columbia and 3,100 slaves were freed. The year after that is when the Emancipation Proclamation happened and Virginia had to lose their slaves anyway. Suck it, nerd. No, Suck wait, it, no. Yes. In 1860, asshole, not nerd. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. In 1868, the district's African American male residents were finally given the right to vote in the municipal elections. Male residents. Male residents, but still, it was a step. A step. It was a step. Despite the ever-growing population, DC was in need of some serious modernization and growth. However, the initial growth bankrupted the government, of course, and this growth period actually lasted a long time. In 1950, the district's population reached a peak of 802,178 residents. That doesn't sound like a lot. But it's a lot. But it is. For that tiny area, yes. No. Just in general. Yeah. In 1968, after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., riots broke out in the district. The riots went on for three days until federal troops and Army National Guardsmen were brought in to stop the violence. Sounds I want to cover that one day. Yeah. Yes, it does sound very familiar. Yeah. In 1975, Walter Washington became the first elected and the first black mayor of the district. Yay! What? Do you hear that? airplane no it was like i don't i don't know it was like a voice from another dimension that just broke through into my house (laughs) nope i don't hear that music okay what did the voice say i i couldn't understand it i hope i hear it on the recording later me too So, as of July 2018, the population was roughly 700,000, making it the 20th most populated city in the U.S. That's so, a lot. That is why I said 802,178 is a lot. 8,200. Okay. 800,000. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. You heard 8,200? No. I thought, oh. I thought, that's why I was like, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> no, it's a lot. Yes, it's, it's a, a lot. lot. Ignore there- me. I'm no math. You know math. I'm no math. (laughs) You're no math. Nope. There are many historical sites you might want to visit if you go to Washington, D.C. Literally any of the Capitol buildings, just the architecture alone. I love it. Architecture. Fantastic. 
Um, the Lincoln Memorial. Memorial. The. The Lincoln Memorial, the National Mall, the Smithsonian, any oh, of the Smithsonian them. so bad. I don't know if yes. a lot of the practices are ethical, though. Well, I don't know about their practices. I just know I really want to go to the Smithsonian. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, see. we'll, we'll look into the practices. We'll plan a trip. Yeah. Well, it's D.C. It's not that far away. What, sure. nine hours? Yeah. We've we drove further for Florida. Yeah. 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 National Gallery of Art, the International Spy Museum, is an obvious must. Ugh. Uh, yes. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Uh, Ford's Theater, which, like I told you, I am super regretting not doing today for my story, but, yeah. but we, we just have to come back. back to D.C. Yes. Yeah. It's not like there's a shortage of murders in Washington, D.C. Really, there's not. Okay. Um, also, there's the U.S. Botanic Garden, the National mm-hmm. Museum of African American History and Culture, mm-hmm. the National Museum of American Indian, the U.S. Mm-hmm. National Arboretum, and all of the parks in the area. Like, I knew parks. I needed to go for the Smithsonian, but the parks, man. Parks. They're so pretty. Imagine the rando nodding. Ooh, good thought. And... That is the history of Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> okay, so what is your story this week? Okay, my story today would be is about Thomas Swit. All right, so my sources are Wikipedia, of course. The go-to. The Washington, go-to. A Washington Post article by John Kelly. Mm-hmm. A Baltimore Sun article by Jamie Dolan. And most of this came from an article titled Letters from an Arsonist by Dave Jamieson. And you'll find out why later. Okay. So, Thomas Sweat. Sweat. Sweaty. Okay. <laughs> Thomas Sweat is probably the most prolific serial, kill- serial arsonist. In American history, who you've probably I, never I, heard about. You are correct. I have not. Sorry. Yes. He set over 350 fires over three decades in Washington, D.C. Oh. Jeez, that's a lot. 350? A lot. 300, over 350. Over 350. Over 350 in Washington, D.C. and surrounding areas, including Prince George's County in Maryland, Oof. which this is spanning over three decades, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hundred a decade. People, right. And multiple people died as a result of some of these fires. So, serial arsonist and a murderer. Rude. <sighs> this is really long. So, there are some things that I had to leave out and that made me sad. But, also, um, get ready to hear me say masturbate a lot more than I, I ever thought that I would on this podcast. Like, To be fair, I also never thought you would say that word. Yes, masturbate. So, as a child... (laughs) As a child, Sweat described himself as being different. He felt like an oddball or a black sheep in the family. Um, Yeah. He wasn't interested in the things that he was expected to be interested in as a boy. You know, typically gendered boy stuff, like learning to ride a bike or playing sports. Which... Yeah. 
But these are his words, so. Instead, uh, he loved playing house in the woods. Me too! (laughs) He would make these little houses out of straw and pretend to be the lady next door, and he would dare his brothers to enter the house without knocking. They called each other Mrs. Lady. Aww. They would also walk uptown to McCory's dime store where his brother would steal race cars, uh, race car toys, and he would steal baby dolls and bread. Baby dolls and bread? Why bread? bread. It's, uh, because it was a yeast bread, and it wasn't, like, he couldn't get that sort of bread at home. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, um... Here we go. He became aroused by the thought of big shoes. Like, big patent leather boots. Like, from childhood all the way up through adulthood, he would he would masturbate over both his father and uncle's shoes and sleep with his uncle's shoes in his bed while his uncle was away. That... Okay, I'm all for everyone having their own individual kinks, even if it's something as weird as big shoes. That's not but all. <laughs> but your family stuff. That's not all. <laughs> no, don't tell me that. Um, he said that he would also sneak outside at night, go behind the house, and peep through the window at his father while he was laying in bed, reading the paper, and masturbate over his father's shoes. No, uh, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. There was one time his family had this big church meeting at their house. Uh-huh. And everybody was outside, and he went into the bathroom and saw a man standing in the backyard through the window wearing orange-brown military-style shoes. Just masturbated right then and there. He said he would often think about those shoes when he was masturbating. Like, most of this comes from letters that he wrote to Dave Jamieson. Yeah. And he even wrote in those letters that he would think about those shoes often when masturbating mm. yeah he must really like clown shoes too then i don't know that's wow mm-hmm. thought i didn't want to have thank you um <laughs> so you're obviously, welcome he likes men and has a sort of shoe or foot fetish which mm-hmm. i don't judge obviously but yeah. um, not obviously i'm not saying that i, I mean look. <laughs> look don't look at me <laughs> Um, no, I don't, I don't judge that. Um, but in this case, it, it seems there was something, ob- like, obviously something going on. Like, it seems he was at an age where he didn't know how to express his feelings and probably mm-hmm. didn't understand why he was having those feelings, which is sad. Um, yeah. But as he got older, he became obsessed with the military and wanted to become a Marine. In 1976, he tried to enlist and pass the aptitude test, but not the physical. Oh. He never got over the rejection, though. He went on to have a sort of uh, fascination with men in uniforms. He thought duty and courage were beautiful things, and military uniforms sort of embodied that for him. To be fair, most people like someone in a good tailored uniform. Fair, Like, one that fits really nice. Fair. However... The sight of young black men in marine dress blues sent sweat into fits of lust. Do you go into fits of lust when you see somebody in a well-tailored uniform, Rachel? Now, Nick Jonas, maybe. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Other than that, 
no. Well. Hmm. The Nick Jonas, maybe. So, once he's grown up, um, he moves to LeBomb Street, which he said, which, not he says, which was a bit of a poorer neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He wasn't super sociable, mainly keeping to himself, tending to his building's property, mowing the front lawn and clearing trash, um, yeah. like from the alley and the sidewalk. I'm gonna burp again. Do it! Excuse me. I was about to say burp me. Excuse me. (laughs) I'm a little far away. Just, like, give me a psychic pat on the back. Um, I'll wind up, like, psychically smacking you in the head or something. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, psychic smack. (laughs) New title. New title. (laughs) When local drunks or homeless people offered to pitch in he would accept the offer and reward them with a drink or a cigarette yep he and his sister had a home renovation business that they worked on the side on his off days he would work on like kit in like apartments and houses doing like kitchens flooring walls cabinets molding and he ended up they ended up saving a lot of money by reading like self-help books and like diy books stuff like that yeah and he was super into interior design and took pride in how nice his apartment looked but said mm-hmm. that even when people complimented him or his apartment, it never made him feel better. Uh, I wonder why. Well, he writes that the, no matter what nice things people said, that depressed feeling inside wouldn't go away. And instead, it would make him, I guess because it didn't go away, that feeling that would make him want to go out and do evil stuff. Yeah. Like setting something on fire. Set a book on fire in your kitchen sink. Problem solved. What? Why would you set a book on fire in your kitchen sink? I love that's how that's immediately where you go. Not like, let's light a big ass candle or a bonfire. Set a book on fire in your kitchen sink. <laughs> how do it? Right I don't now. know. <laughs> um, it's that Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, Sweat began working at KFC in 1993 up until he was arrested and was thought to be the best KFC chef in the area. Concerning. Nah, it's not like he was like a cannibal or anything. It's not like I mean that. Okay, people. less concerning. So <laughs> never mind. Okay, ignore me. He kept his chick, his chicken. He kept his chicken immaculate. <laughs> immaculate chicken. Okay. <laughs> the the immaculate chicken. Jesus. So he kept his kitchen immaculate and would often bring other employees under his wing, and it was hard work. But he was the he was, like, the only one that never complained and showed up at 6 a.m. every day with a happy attitude and even brought donuts and coffee for everyone. Oh, His co-workers nice described him as sweet. As sweet. Sweat was sweet. Sweet. Sweat was sweet. Hmm. Mm. He moved up from cook to all-star to shoop, shoop, shift shoop. supervisor to assistant manager to unit manager He really put a lot into his job, but he was often told that he didn't have a real job by his family, which is something that's so common. I was going to say a lot of people hear that. Yeah. Yeah. People don't consider food service or retail jobs to be legitimate career paths, which honestly- is hilarious because they were considered essential. Exactly. Exactly. And on top of that, it just reinforces the idea that they don't deserve to be paid a living wage or get proper insurance or be treated with respect. Yeah. 
Just, which is the thing that makes it so ironic that they're considered essential workers. It's just, mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That job made him embarrassed because, or that made him embarrassed because he worked his ass off at this food service job and he was good at it and people didn't take him seriously. Yeah. So going back a little, if my, ugh, okay. When he moved into the apartment on Bomb Street, he didn't have much of a love life. There were a few one-night stands, but no relationships that lasted past that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't really interested in the love with roses and red wine, and he said he would choose people. He said that he would choose people for crazy reasons. Like, like what? Do I want to know? Like, he has a nice funky walk. Or... Funky in a good way or funky in a bad way? I think Because, I was going to say, because depending on the era, funky meant good. Well, this was like in the 80s and and the 90s. So funky meant good. Okay. uh, Or or just like maybe enjoying their companionship, but he didn't really want to be around them super often. Most of these mm. like short-lived relationships, if you can call them that, did, mm, they ended violently. Yeah. Some even involved police, and he said he took some into his own hands, which, like, what's that mean? Yeah. Yikes. Super yikes. Mega yikes. Oof. He said that these feelings and the way he handles relationships go back to his childhood. He said that he never felt loved by his family and says Mm. that he could say that he loves them, but that it's hard to feel it. Yeah. Whenever he craved some sort of companionship, he would cruise. He would cruise near the Navy Yard clubs, uh, which is apparently where the city's gay underbelly was. He huh? liked. Yeah, he liked men who were athletic, but he could be attracted attracted to men for random reasons like the size of their feet, because size eleven and twelve are his favorites. <laughs> or for the way that they walked. Apparently, pigeon toes made him swoon. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's just making me think about how many women went gaga over Jensen Ackles and his bow leg. leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in the 80s, he had a friend he would go out clubbing with and they would drive around together. One night, he picked up a guy named Tyrone who was a boxer and they got close and became like best friends. And he would come over on Wednesday to watch Dynasty. Until... I thought you were going to say dinosaur. No. <laughs> Until Sweat became obsessed with him. Oh, Sweat. No. One night, he went over to Tyrone's aunt's house where Tyrone was staying, snuck into the basement where Tyrone stayed, took all of his clothes and shoes, some of which he actually bought for him, and set the house on fire. Um... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that if you're obsessed with someone? I don't think he's quite in his right mind. Okay. Uh, She was slightly injured and the only damage was to the basement. He actually slept with those shoes on his pillow so he could smell them. Ew. Yeah. Ew. Just ew. Foot smell. Sweat said that this was a sort of tipping point in his life where he sort of became two people like there was a sweet like hard-working churchgoer who was charitable 
and then the lonely, violent, and obsessive man who had, like, unspeakable urges. Yeah. There could be more fires before this, but he hasn't confessed to more, um, like, from his youth or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he has said that there were multiple fires where while he was living on La Bomb Street. He burnt vacant buildings, homes, stores. He burned the garage behind his apartment. He burned the neighborhood carryout, neighborhood laundromat. It seems like he started off with, like, abandoned buildings, but, like, escalated over time. Mm-hmm. And then he started setting fires for seemingly any reason at all. Like, real petty shit. <laughs> One Is time he, he got- pyromaniac? I would say so. Okay. Once he got a bad haircut at Kenny and Paul's barbershop and came back later to torch the place. Oh, lovely. They were able to rebuild and, like, get their, like, standing back in the community. But then, apparently, he says the addicts started hanging out on the block, so he burned it down again. The addicts. Yeah. Just, like, loads of barbershops, um, carryouts and gas stations burned as many of me as he could uh he lived barbershops though because there were there were always attractive men there and he had a fascination with barbers yeah why he i don't know it's like men in uniform and i guess they have a certain outfit that they wear they wear a coat i don't know i don't think you're thinking of the type of barber that i am they wear a coat. Are you thinking of like 1950s barbers? I am. They wear a coat. No, like one of those. This is in the 1980s, 90s. I don't know. He just likes barbers. <laughs> That's all I fucking know. <laughs> I get caught up on the weirdest things. I'm you sorry. really do. He said he always tried to keep a close eye on the aftermath of his fires, but he missed this one. Oh, he missed it. The aftermath. Oh. So. January 11th, 1985, Sweat finished his shift at Roy Rogers and started walking home. Mm-hmm. He saw an attractive man on the sidewalk who looked to be in his 30s walking in the opposite direction. The man spoke as he passed him and Sweat nodded hello back. Sweat liked him immediately. 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 It was love at first sight. It was stalker at first sight. <laughs> Uh, the man kept walking home, and Sweat turned around and followed him. Oof. Bad he sign. later said he just wanted to meet him. He followed him all the way back to his house. Like, four blocks. Mm. The man walked into his house, and Sweat turned and headed back home, still wanting to meet the man, and thought excitedly he'd get to see him again but later said that he knew the only way he would meet again, they would meet again, was through fire. He changed out of his work clothes and put on a casual outfit. He then borrowed his sister's car and drove back to the man's house, but not before stopping at a gas station to fill up an empty two-liter with gasoline. He parked near the house and walked to the front porch. He poured the gasoline beneath the front door and then held it there with a towel that he'd brought along lit a match, and dropped it. The smoke filled the front hallway and poured out the front door. Sweat ran back to his sister's car and watched the the flames grow. On the second floor, the man woke up to find his bedroom on fire. On the same floor were, obviously, his wife, daughter, stepdaughter, 
and his son and stepson were down in the basement. Sweat circled the block and came back to the house. The man was on the front porch in nothing but his underwear. Sweat wrote that he was glad to see the man and wanted to help, but the fire trucks were coming and he didn't want to get caught. The man escaped through a window but had suffered asphyxia from the smoke and third degree burns over 60% of his body. Oh. But he didn't seem to notice. He was yelling that his wife was still inside. And from the street, Sweat could hear one of the boys yelling for help from a basement window. He considered getting out of the car to help him, but the fire truck was already on the street, so he sped off. It took 85 firefighters more than 45 minutes to get the fire under control. The boys escaped unharmed, but the girls were both badly burned. The mother couldn't be found until the wreckage could be sorted through, and her body was finally found around dawn. She had died of asphyxia and burns. Oddly enough, the official fire report said that the cause was the result of a carelessly dropped cigarette in the bedding of a second floor bedroom. Yet, nobody in the house smoked, so that made zero sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think that back then, half the time, they were just winging it. I have no... It, it must... He must... This guy must have been winging it. I... Because that makes zero sense. <sighs> so, Sweat learned the name of the man and woman in the house by reading in the newspaper. His name was Roy Pickett... Pickup? And... Her name was Bessie Mae Duncan. Sweat said that he was sad to learn about her death, but in his mind, she was collateral damage he had to incur in order to service his fantasies. Because everyone's fantasies <clears throat> have collateral damage. Of course. Why not? Yeah, so he knew that she died, but what he didn't know was that... Was that Roy succumbed to his injuries from the fire just two months later... On March 5th, 1985, at Washington Hospital Center, after undergoing several surgeries in the hopes of saving his life. Oh, that's horrible. Those poor kids. Yeah. Are left without both of their parents. Yeah. Mm. Her death didn't deter him at all. No, I'm sure it didn't. At all. So, through the 80s and 90s, he set fires at random constantly. He said it was like... At work, he was one person, and as soon as he got off his dark, like, as soon as he got dark, his, this other darker side took over. But during all this time, he was never caught. Most people think that it was because he stuck to, like, burning buildings and homes that were mainly in poorer areas. Yeah. To be fair, DC's arson investigators at the time were classifying over 200 fires per year as arson. So... So, yeah. Um, yeah. So they kind of ha- had their hands full, but... A little. It's a thought that still holds some weight, I think. So, in 2001, Thomas Sweat bought a used Toyota, and this meant his area of opportunity expanded significantly. So he didn't have to keep borrowing his sister's car. Didn't have to keep borrowing his sister's car, didn't have to stay in the same area, could go wherever he wanted. Mm-hmm. So, obviously... This means there's going to be escalation. Yep. His favorite new area to target was Prince George's County, which was full of cozy, tree-lined, middle-class neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. One fire he set there was an entire complex that was under construction at Southview Dry Mountainside Drive. 
mountainside, which ended up costing one net million dollars because of a pipeline explosion. Wow. Yeah. He said it was a huge fire that could be seen and heard miles away. He remembered that it was amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. He said that it became easier and easier after doing it for so long, but that the fear of being caught was still there. And he said that each fire was like doing it for the first time. And each time he would ask the Lord to forgive him what he was about to do. He also said that each one was special in its own way. So, mm-hmm. the further he strayed from his original stomping grounds, the more officials from D.C. and George- Prince George's County started communicating and realized that a bunch of suspicious fires had been set along the border between them, and this was in about 2003. So, they noticed that the fires had a lot in common. Like, the homes were mostly detached and single-family. They were most often set on porches and near doorways, and they were always set in the early morning hours. Not only that, but an ATF or Federal, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives mm-hmm. lab determined that the same kind of device was used in each fire. Oh, so yeah. not a cigarette dropped on a bed sheet. Right. It was always some sort of plastic jug that had been filled with gasoline and carried to the scene inside inside of a plastic bag with a piece of cloth tied to the handle. The Mm. lab linked four of these fires together for certain, while there were 15 more that seemed similar enough to warrant investigation into a serial arsonist. Investigators created a map of all of the cases of arson they had tied together, hoping to find something that showed a pattern, something to suggest who this person is to try to build a profile, you know. Yeah. So... They determined that the arsonist liked greenery near the homes he burned and that he preferred low-income and working-class neighborhoods. Most of them were set near exits, which suggested that the arsonist hoped to kill or terrify the people inside. By mid-July 2003, investigators saw about two dozen recent fires, one of which killed an 80-year-old woman named Lou Edna Jones. Yeah, she was a grandmother and, like, really beloved in the community. The thing about this one, though, is that there was a fire that had been set the same night, literally just 50 minutes prior. So, yet another escalation. Really? And on top of that, he later writes that he remembers this one the most. He said that he remembers sitting there, getting at the nerve to set it on fire because the house was so big, he wasn't sure it would burn. Mm-hmm. Luedna's house? Yeah. Luedna Jones' grandson was what caught his attention. He didn't, yeah, he didn't know him personally, but saw him get the mail out of the mailbox on the front porch. He was muscular and attractive, so he caught Sweat's eye. He wanted to meet him so he could live out his fantasy through fire, um, watching him jump out of the window for help and come running to him. Yeah. So he set the house on fire and then raced home to watch the news so he could watch the fire. He said he was sad. Like, he's not even waiting around for his fantasy to come through, come true with this well, guy coming out and running towards him. Well, he knows that that will come true, him. because as soon as he sets that fire, he's got to get out of there, because the fire trucks are going to show up. Yeah. He's going to get so, caught. Dumbass. I would just not <laughs> do it, but, you know. I mean, common sense. 
common sense wouldn't have led you to set anything on fire in the first place, so... Um, well, obviously. He was sad to hear about the fatality, um, but was fascinated by the huge fire. He said he'll always remember that house. He said he also prays for forgiveness and that God helps the victims with their struggles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very weird. He, it sounds like he, a lot of these, he looks back on them, like, extremely fondly and is like, man, good times. Good times, good times, Mm -hmm. bud. Yeah. So the ATF and local law enforcement launched an exhaustive manhunt for the arsonist that lasted two years. They recreated models of the arsonist device and staged burns at a lab on a house slated for demolition so they could figure out how it worked, how long he spent there before he had to leave, all of that stuff. September 2003, investigators got a big break. Three brothers returned to their home around 3 a.m. after partying, and they saw a strange man sitting on their front porch. The man played it off as being lost, Mm. asking if a Mr. Harris lived there. When they told him no, he just walked off, but he left a bag behind that contained a plastic jug full of gasoline, piece of cloth tied to the handle. Obviously, they called the police, and investigators found a single hair at the bottom of the bag. Yes. They ran a DNA test on it and discovered that it belonged to a black male, but it didn't match anyone in their database. Yep. Yeah. So, technically, technically. first offender. I mean, he, it seems he had had a couple of run-ins with law, first, like in his past well, relationships with having to call the police um, when things turned violent, stuff like yeah. that, but not in their system, so obviously he probably wasn't charged with anything. Um, yeah. The profile built by investigators determined that the arsonist was lonesome, anxiety-ridden, and hobbled by a deep sense of failure, which was so fucking accurate, dude. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Oof. (laughs) That's rough. Um, How we relatable. In October of 2003, police were called to a fire on the front porch of a home. Agents had been placed in neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. the area where the arsonist frequented in the hopes of being able to catch the arsonist in the act. One agent made it to the house before firefighters and attempted to shut down the streets in the area in the hopes of catching the arsonist, but he was already gone. And I can only imagine how he felt knowing the police were after him, but they they weren't be able to catch him. Like, they just kept missing him. He was always and one later step said, ahead of them. Yeah. And he said that he would walk past the police every once in a while and think, if they only knew it was me. I'd be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Later that year, he went further out of his hunting ground because he got bored of the area he was in and started escalating even more as the year started to come to a close. Mm. Just like setting fires one after another. In December... Well, I think in, like, November, he set two. In December, he set a fire in New Carrollton. The police searched surveillance footage from nearby shops to see if they could catch the culprit. And they actually saw a car that stopped in front of a fire truck, and the person, obviously sweat, started flashing their lights at this fire truck as it got closer and closer, like it was trying to stop them. It was very weird. 
but the footage was so grainy that they couldn't get anything. Mm-hmm. Like, they even sent that shit to NASA, and they couldn't get anything. Well, I mean, cameras weren't exactly the best. I know. Um. <laughs> February 6, 2004, sweat spread out to Fairfax County and set a fire in an apartment building. And then, just a week later, on Valentine's Day... He lit one of his devices on a stairwell of an apartment building on Blair Road, just over the county line into Montgomery County. The fire was between the first and second floor, so it blocked residents from coming down the stairs, and a woman and her two daughters had to run through the flames to escape. Oh my god, are they okay? Were they okay? Yeah. Okay. He literally watched as an older woman hung from an upper floor window gasping for breath. He wrote... I can still see her. A plus human right there. Wow. Luckily, uh, the fire didn't totally destroy the device used to start it for this one. A shopping bag, uh, a gallon jug, and a swatch from a pair of black slacks uh, were left behind. Mm -hmm. A Montgomery County Crime Lab technician uh, extracted a trace amount of DNA that somehow didn't get destroyed. Oh, good. The DNA matched the DNA taken from the attempted fire at the home of the three men who called police. Yeah. But they still didn't have a suspect. Like, one agent... It's not in the system. They're not going to have a suspect. Right. One agent even put up a wanted poster at headquarters that didn't have a suspect's picture, but instead just had a double helix, and instead of a name, it was just genetic code. I mean... Like, it was making them that crazy. <laughs> if, if you know your genetic code, then... If you know your genetic codes. Um, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I said earlier he was obsessed with the military and men in uniforms. Uh-huh. But not just military uniforms. Firefighter uniforms. Firefighters, bus drivers, police officers, you name it, he likes it, basically. But what I didn't mention was that he would often go to bases in the area and steal any sort of uniform or military regalia from cars left unlocked. He did this until he had a complete set and would wear it around the house. What a weirdo. It's very interesting, (laughs) I gotta say. The thing is, he had this sort of love-hate relationship with the police. He's, he was attracted to them, but hated the authority they held. And anytime he saw a police car, he felt slighted. Mm-hmm. So he torched them to take that power away. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so, God, he would set fire to recruitment offices, stations, and even their homes and personal cars. So smart. Yeah, not just police officers, but like, military workers as well. Mm, so, so and smart. the sexier the car, the better. So if it was a Mustang, hell yeah. The sexier yeah. the car, the better. The sexier the car, the better. Yeah. That 67 Chevy Impala. Oh, yeah. And um, he recorded some of these fires. Like video and recorded? And he kept it. A... Yes. Really? Yes. What a dumbass. And he kept a diary of every single fire he ever started. What? Everyone. A dumbass. Nope. Nope. 
You would think, but no. I'm still thinking, what a dumbass. You'll see. You get the wrong person looking at that. You're going to jail. So, he would look through it, and he would become sexually aroused. Oh, no. He wrote that he... (laughs) You're gonna say it again! (laughs) He wrote that he must have masturbated a hundred times a day. That... That... All he wanted to do was tape the fires, go home, watch them, and masturbate. That is so unhealthy. Yeah, and really fucked up, considering some of those fires people died. Died in, yeah. So, investigators knew that the arsonists shopped at convenience stores because of some of the bags that were left behind. So, because they were... There are so many convenience stores in the area, they lucked out when there were four fires within a week of each other... In late 2004, because the remnants of the plastic bag read Made in China for Cornelius Shop, but the rest of the letters were destroyed in the fire. But one of the fires said a few days later, let them piece together the whole thing. Oh, that's good. It read, Made in China for Cornelius Shopping Bag Company, which was a bag outfit in Richmond. The company supplied their black bags to just two shops in the D.C. area. They were Circle 7 convenience stores, one on Kenilworth Avenue Northeast, and the other on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue Southeast. Mm-hmm. Just a short walk from old Kenny and Paul's barber shop. Mmm, lovely. Yeah. Investigators put cameras in both stores and started what they called the Black Bag Operation. That's a cool name. It's an interesting name, at least. So, with... The cooperation of the owner of the two Circle 7 stores, agents affixed thumbnail-sized stainless steel chips to the bottom of every bag in both stores. Each chip was marked according to an alphanumeric code going in order through the stack. If just one of the bags were involved in the fire, the chip would survive, and because agents went to the stores daily to track which bags had been used, they would be able to go to the video to see which customer had purchased the bag from the fire. Oh. Smart. Yeah. Um. Didn't really end up helping them. I'm all, sure it didn't. So, on December fifth, two thousand four, a strange clue turned up about a block away from the scene of an Arlington house fire. A Marine Corps cap and dress pants. Yeah, the lab determined that DNA from the pants matched the DNA found at the other fire scenes. I don't know why the fuck he's just going out in costume now. Which is weird because he said that he never wore them out in public. He's just weird. Very weird. It's it's, not the good weird. (laughs) So, um, the I already said that. Investigators started to think their arsonist could be a marine. Nope. Yeah. Agents from the Naval Criminal Investigative Science Services, so NCIS, you know, couldn't offer them DNA profiles of current Marines, but they did have a couple of leads on old barracks-related car fires. Mm -hmm. There was a car captured on video leaving the scene of a fire that had been traced to a man who lived right around the corner from the Circle 7 store on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. His name, you guessed it. Thomas Sweet Sweat. Sweet Sweat. I spelled it sweet again. <laughs> His new name is Thomas Sweet Sweat. Gross. 
Ew. <laughs> Investigators started surveillance on Sweat. He appeared to be, you know, average working guy. Um, just worked at KFC. Um, had minor, like, really long ago brushes with, with the law. But something seemed a little bit off about him. Like, he was... He seemed mm, a little too meticulous. A little too meticulous? Yeah. So one of the investigators, um, I think it's Scott Fulkerson. I think that's his name. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) he once watched him, um, it was so weird. He was leaving work. Sweat was. What? I heard a noise. I'm not sure what it was. Doesn't matter. Um... He once watched Sweat walk outside the restaurant, get down on his knees, and start scraping stale gum from the cracks in the sidewalk. Is that part of his job? No. Uh, Okay. Yeah, and after... So, that was weird, but they didn't see any sort of activity that would tie him to the fires. So, Fulkerson and a DC detective walked into the KFC to interview him. They're like, fuck it, let's go for it. Fulkerson told the cook that he was looking for help in a serial arson case and wanted to know if he had seen anything. He was being pretty evasive, so eventually he was just like, look, did you set the fires? And then Sweat Did you said, set those fires? Well, yeah. yes, sir, I did. And he said, why would I set those beautiful homes on fire when I'm trying to become a homeowner myself? Because you dumb. So Fulkerson asked Sweat to submit a DNA test, and he agreed, because he's like, I don't have my fucking DNA. Yay! Um, so dumb. However, he must have known something, because when Sweat went home, he destroyed his diary of fires. Mm. How? That's a great fucking name, by the way. Diary, diary of, of fires. fires. Yeah. Um, it's a fire anyway, diary. He should write that down. No, um, so the... Swab of saliva went to the slab. The slab. The slab. <laughs> it went to the lab, and a couple of days later, the crime tech called Fulkerson and was like, that's him. He's our guy. That's, that's the dude. April 25th, 2005, Thomas Sweat was arrested as he left a regional meeting for KFC employees. He feigned innocence for an hour and a half before breaking down and admitting to the fires. One of the stipulations of any plea agreement was that he or that he might be offered was that the government insisted investigators be able to interview Sweat about his motives in the hope of being able to like build a profile of a serial arsonist. Yeah, which is so cool. Um, Fulkers- Fulkerson said he <laughs> looked absolutely exhausted and broke down admitting to killing Lou Edna Jones and another elderly woman named Annie Brown in 2002, who wasn't even on the list of fires they suspected him of until after they went through his apartment and found a news clipping. That's horrible. So, yep. One of Sweat's only requests was to meet Blackwell. He was the task force spokesman who was basically the person who was, like, trying to talk to the serial arsonist through the media. Mm-hmm. He just said, sorry for all the headaches. <laughs> That's literally what he said. Sorry for all the headaches. That's literally what he said. And Blackwell said, it's okay. It's all over now. And then the two shook hands. 
I mean, that is not how that would happen today. No. Um, I don't. Uh, mm. mm-hmm. Fulkerson and Bob Luckett, um, a, a fire investigator, spent an additional four days driving sweat around um, to old DC fire scenes and listening to his stories. Uh-huh. So, normally, in this situation, this sort of ride-along would cause a perpetrator to feel shame and embarrassment mm-hmm. for what they've done. However, in this case, what was kind of the opposite? He seemed to relish this ride-along as if, like, a weight was lifted from his shoulders because somebody finally knew his secret and because they were, like, fire investigators... He felt like they kind of understood him a little bit. Um, don't think that's how that works. But in his letters from prison, Sweat would actually often ask how Scott and Bob were doing and express nothing but gratitude and respect towards them. Yeah. He also signed a secret guilty plea within two weeks of of his arrest, which... Fulkerson said was the fastest they'd ever seen. Like, he just wanted it over with. Yeah. With Sweat's help, investigators closed out 353 fires. But, like, stretching all the way back to the 80s. But that's only the ones he could remember. Cool. So, it could be way, way more. more. Yeah. Way, way more. Cool. Um, so Sweat was sentenced to a double life sentence at the United States Penitentiary at Terre Haute, Hot, uh, where he will likely spend the rest of his life. Good. He still thinks about the fires he set and is fascinated by them, even though he seems to express some guilt about the deaths deaths his fires led to. Mm-hmm. He apologized to. I'm not going to read it because it. Mm, I don't feel it. Yeah. But he apologized to his victims and their families and said the that the pain they feel he feels every day as well. Which, oh no shit! Like you recorded, wrote about it, and thought about it later and masturbated to the memory that, of it. That. So mm. no. Um, also, some of his victims' families didn't know that it was arson, and only found out like twenty years later, later yeah. when he confessed. Like how awful is that? Yeah, because they thought they had closure, and suddenly they're just having to relive it again. Yes. Also, um, so here's the part where I mentioned why this only comes from one article, mostly. comes from one article, because there's a gag order on most of the investigators who are part of this case. So anything about this comes directly from letters that he sent mm-hmm. once incarcerated. I don't know why there's a gag order, but so few people are allowed to talk about it or any of the possible motives or any other fires he could have mentioned. That's wild to me. Like, it's the main reason why I chose this one, because while I was researching it, when I first started researching it, I couldn't find a lot about it until I found this article Mm -hmm. written by Dave, Dave Jameson. And I was like... What? There's also a book that I would recommend called Thomas Sweat, Inside the Mind of DC's Most Notorious Arsonist by Jonathan Riff, R-I-F-F-E, I don't know. 
Raffaire. Who is a firefighter who was, like, obsessed with Thomas Sweat. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't have time to read, but I'm really thinking about it because he wrote back and forth with Sweat for three years in order to write this book. So he probably has a lot of information. A lot of information. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as this was, and as long as the article by Dave Jameson was, yeah, like it's a whole ass book of information that I want to know. Yeah. Um, he wrote in one letter after being sent for prison for a while. After being in prison for a while, quote. My sister in Ohio sent pictures of her house that I've never seen, and her yard is beautiful. She has real grass that looks like carpet and flowers are really pretty. Her neighborhood reminded me of the Birchwood community off Livingston Road and Oxen Hill Mountain side. My mind started to think of evil things to do in that neighborhood. That's so sad. Those demons are still in me. And that's Thomas Sweat, everybody! Um, mm. My story this week is of an amazing monster known as the Snallygaster. The Snallygaster. 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 Why are you saying that? <laughs> Because I don't know how else to say it. It's a Snallygaster. Snallygaster? Snallygaster. Snallygaster? That's what I have. I have to do it. I have to do it nasally. I don't know. It just... Snallygaster. It's a snallygaster. That was good. I like that. Okay, demon. Snallygaster. (laughs) (laughs) So, my sources are legendsofamerica.com, buzzfeed, slash com, dot cdn, dot am, (laughs) project, dot org. (laughs) Slash com? <laughs> Look, it's BuzzFeed hyphen com. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, Atlas Obscura hyphen com. Ancientorigins.net, ancient, ancientpages.com, AppalachianHistory.net, Wikipedia, uh, and AltonWeb.com. So. The Snallygaster is described as a dragon-like beast that is said to inhabit the Central Maryland and Washington, D.C. metro area. The beast was first seen when the area was settled in the 1730s by German that's, immigrants. The, that's um, a while back. A while back. They called the beast Schnellergeist, which huh. means quick ghost. This version. I said quick goat for a second. Yes, it's a quick goat. No, ghost. Geist. Okay. This version of the creature was initially seen with the nightmarish features of sirens, demons, and ghouls. It has been described as half reptile, half bird with a metallic beak, lined with razor sharp teeth, and occasionally had octopus like tentacles. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I will send you a picture. But its more specific characteristics were that it was a dragon-like creature with wings, claws, tentacles, fur, horns, and a long reptilian tail. It's claimed to swoop down silently from the sky to pick up and carry away its victims to suck their blood. So this is like 
a vampire slash chupacabra slash, slash dragon slash, slash dragon slash uh, New Jersey devil. <laughs> so it's like a, a chimera. Yeah. Okay, so this is the first picture that I found, which is what made me want to cover it. Oh my, that's not where I thought the tentacles would be. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Many- There's no way those tiny little fucking wings will carry that thing. <laughs> right. Many people at the time would paint red hexes or a seven-pointed star on their barns in order to keep the monster away because oh. it's afraid of seven-pointed stars. Okay. This creature was merely folklore for years until the late 1920s and early 1930s. Apparently, the Snallygaster decided to come into the limelight as there were many sightings and newspaper articles written about it. Hmm. One group of lumberjacks claimed to have stumbled upon a nest of the creature. It was perched up high on a cliff and had eggs in it that were big enough to hatch a horse. Oh, okay. However, this conflicts with older stories that claimed that the creature lived in caves. Yeah, okay. In February of 1909, just a month after the first sighting of the Jersey Devil, the Snallygaster was seen flying around Frederick County, Maryland. It was then sighted again, this time in Middletown, where it was promptly reported to the Cumberland Evening Times and Middletown's Valley Register. It was in the paper for weeks, supposedly being seen everywhere between New Jersey, West Virginia, and Ohio. It apparently caused a ruckus when its footprints were discovered in the snow in New Jersey. Oh, that's a very wide radius. Right? For those little bitty tiny wings, yeah. Right. However, the Snallygaster stories were removed from the front page of the paper after it came to light that the stories had been faked in order mm. to revive the dying Middletown Valley Register. The, oh. Mm-hmm. The publisher and editor of the Middletown Valley Register, George C. Roderick, and a journalist named Ralph S. Wolf, apparently... Hi. <laughs> apparently revived the Snallygaster story in order to boost the circulation of their newspaper. Well. So. Gotta drum up business somehow. Yeah, but that's when you become a tabloid, not a newspaper. It's actually known for a fact that one of the people who wrote into the paper about their experience was a friend of Roderick's who was using a pseudoname. These terrifying articles, however, had already done their damage and even reached as far as the President of the United States. Wow. With this much publicity, the Smithsonian Institute offered a $100,000 reward for proof of the monster. Oh, wow. It is said that the rumors of the attacks by the Snallygaster were so prolific that President Teddy Roosevelt supposedly made plans to kill and mount the monster for display in the Smithsonian. I do not doubt that. I don't doubt it either. Mm -mm, mm -mm, Not with a man like him. Uh, he even apparently made plans to postpone an African safari in order to personally hunt down the Snallygaster. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Mm. With this, other papers began to jump on the Snallygaster bandwagon. This is just making me think of that uh, smelly cat song on Friends. Really? <laughs> it is. Sorry. 
Other papers began to jump on the Snallygaster bandwagon, who published articles and began to pressure the public for photographs of the creature. Even National Geographic was supposedly preparing for an expedition to capture pictures of it on film. <sighs> However, after the initial 30 days, the notoriety surrounding the creature kind of died out. Hmm. But it was still being seen by people, and it's their stories that kind of kept it alive. Uh, for example, in November of 1923, Charles F. Maine was returning to Middletown from Frederick early one morning. Uh, he apparently looked towards South Mountain when he saw the creature flying roughly 25 feet from the ground. He said that the wings seemed to be about 12 to 14 feet wide, and it threw long octopus tentacles in and out of its mouth. That's Which insane. relates to the picture that I sent you. Yeah, that's um, insane. Maine also added that the creature had changed colors multiple times, first appearing black and then white. Hmm. Trying to avert panic, the Baltimore Sun reported the death of the Snallygaster shortly after this incident. Oh, of course. Okay. Here's the best part. Accompanying the story was a photograph of the deceased creature in a short blurb about how it had drowned in a vat of whiskey mash on a Baltimore <laughs> County farm. <laughs> Coincidentally, okay. though. Oh, yeah. The Snallygaster. It likes its alcohol. It's a lush. It's a lush. Before the remains could be examined, reports say that federal prohibition officers inadvertently blew up the still. So there is nothing. However, there are many old stories that depict the monster diving down, snatching up children and livestock. Similar to that of the Native American Thunderbird, uh, there is another creature that, well, two other creatures, that people believe that the Snallygaster could be. The Michi Pishu and the Piasaw, uh, which were both horned serpents from Native American cultures. Hmm. The Michi Pishu was known as a, and I don't think I'm saying that one right, but I'm going to keep saying it that way, was known as the underwater panther and is one of the most important of several mythological water beings among many indigenous peoples of the northeastern woodlands and Great Lake regions, particularly among the Anishinaab tribe. I'm so sorry. I know that one said wrong. And it has the head and paws of a giant cat, but is covered in scales and dagger-like spikes along its back and tail. And it has the horns of a deer or a bison. Oh, I was about to say, dude, that's a fucking tonsil worm. <laughs> Minus the but, horns. <laughs> not with the horns. The Michi Peshu were thought to live in the deepest parts of the lake where they could cause storms. Many traditions oh, wow. believed that the creatures were helpful, protective creatures, but more often than not, they were viewed as malevolent monsters who brought death and misfortune. Hmm. Now, the Piasaw. Uh, it is a dragon that is as large as a calf with horns like a deer, red eyes, a beard like a tiger's, a face like a man, the body covered with green, red, and black scales, and a tail so long that it passes around the body, over the head, and between the legs. Wow. That entire description is in quotes. Dang. Its name literally translates to a bird that devours men. 
One of the more popular legends regarding this creature is that there once existed a bird-like creature of such great size that it could easily carry off a full-grown deer in its powerful talons. Instead, it had a taste for human flesh. Hundreds of warriors tried and failed to destroy the Piasaw. Whole villages were destroyed, and fear spread among the Illini tribe. The chief, Oatoga, separated himself from his tribe, fasted in solitude for the space of a whole moon, and prayed to the Great Spirit to protect his people from the Piasaw. On the last night of his fasting, the Great Spirit appeared to the chief and told him to select twenty warriors, arm each of them with a bow and poisoned arrow, and conceal them in a designated spot. Another warrior was to be selected and to be bait, basically, for the Piasaw. Upon awaking the next morning, the chief picked his warriors quickly and placed them in position, offering himself as the bait. He placed himself in open view and soon saw Piasaw perched on the bluff eyeing him. The chief began chanting the death song of a warrior when Piasaw swooped down towards him. Just as the creature was about to reach him, every bow was sprung, and every arrow sent sailing into the monster. The creature screamed in both fear and pain and was dead. The whole tribe was finally safe. Unfortunately, that's what I have. Um, And personally, if it weren't for those tentacles that it's Mm -hmm. so often depicted with, um, I could see where it could be compared to the two ancient creatures in the Native American lore. I guess slightly, yeah. Slightly, yeah. But those tentacles. But those tentacles. And it's also a fun discussion when a creature that has been seen in somewhat modern times can be traced back to what would be considered ancient times. Even Mm. though it technically isn't ancient, more vintage times. But what, what do you think? I don't know because, like... It's, it's hard to say because, I don't know. I'm, I'm always a little bit wary when people start saying that they're seeing things that are similar to... Yeah. Like, especially when it uh, relates to, like, Native American culture. Mm-hmm. Well, the Michi Pesu, I really don't think it is similar at all. And that's not one I just That's the cat you. one. That's the right. cat one. That's yeah. more like the tatal verm. But the um, the other reason that this piazza is people can um, trace it, not necessarily trace it back, but can compare it, because this creature also lives in caves. Which I guess would match. Plus, like, the language that we use now to describe things is not the same language exactly. that we use. A very long time ago to describe things, so I can see how there might be some similarities or discrepancies. Well, and especially since it's been told, you know, time and time again since, what was it, 1760, 1730? Yeah, especially since, like, word of mouth. Yeah, and it was told in German, which does not directly translate to English very well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Native American languages typically don't translate very well either. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it one's, it's, and then there's the, always the thing that, like, the modern ones were made up, and the, yeah, the ones from, like, the 1700s 
up until then were like something a creature that they just didn't know existed yet yeah exactly Okay, well, other than that, um, the reason I included those two creatures is because people were making comparisons with the horns and the Mm -hmm. scales and the the tail and all that. But some fun facts regarding the entity known as the Snallygaster. The creature appears in the game Fallout 76, so for you gaming nerds, you might recognize it. Also, the Snallygaster is a blended whiskey that is produced by Dragon Distillery of Frederick, Maryland. That's why it sounded familiar. And was released in 2018. So it's still relatively new. In 2011, an annual beer festival began began called Snallygaster and is held each year in Washington, D.C. And in 2012, a hard rock punk rock music group of the same name was formed in Baltimore, Maryland. That's cool. So for as little as I found about it... Um, it seems to be really popular in the area. Yeah, and it seems very interesting, too. Yeah, like, I really wish that there would have been more stories. Yeah. But I mean, not. when you think about it, there's not, like, extensive, like, extensive stuff, like, on a lot of cryptids. There are a lot yeah. of cryptids where there's, like... Barely eh. anything. Yeah. We like, all remember uh, Turkey Squatch. Turkey Squatch. Uh, the Public <laughs> Monster. There's not a whole lot on that one. Um, Which one? Public. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's not a whole lot on that. There's really not a whole lot on Nessie. Right. And I think with Pope-like Monster, if it's if the other cryptids are the way that Pope-like Monster is, then most of it's, like, stuff that people tell each other and don't, like, report or tell anybody yeah, else. exactly. So. Exactly. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Also, check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. Go visit it right now. Yeah. Our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please. It would mean the world to us. Yes. And tell all your friends. Or I'll have to threaten you with... Our horrible singing voices. Psychic violence. I don't know. Oh. Oh. (laughs) I was just going to threaten our horrible singing, but okay. Psychic violence works. That too. Alright. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, goodbye. Bye. So just for you listeners, in case you don't remember, sometimes we record up to two weeks ahead of time. Yes. And um, we have news that we are going to add on to the end of this episode you're listening to. Yes. Um, we actually had to update ourselves uh, right before th- this episode came out because there was new, new information. It was really cool. Um, 
So why don't you tell them about that, Grace? Because you know more than I okay, do. so basically the first episode we ever recorded, my story was Crystal Rogers. Um, mm-hmm. It was from here in Kentucky in Bardstown, and she went missing, and everyone suspected her boyfriend, Brooks Houck. And about two weeks ago now, they found a body in the woods behind the Hauk family farm. Or they found remains. Well, I thought it was just off of uh, 65. Uh, I found an article. 265. found an article that said that the showed where the remains were and that I'm pretty sure it was found by somebody who was on... um, whose farm, like, linked up to theirs, like, in the back. Yeah. So, they were potential human remains. They sent them off to Quantico for testing, and then um, they still have not said who they belong to, but it's strongly believed that they are human and that they belong to Crystal Rogers, which is huge. And literally a week after that... The FBI announced that they were taking over the Crystal Rogers case and started searching, like, all on the same day at 5.45 a.m. They mm-hmm. also, they, a bunch, I think over 150 uh, agents started searching um, Brooks' house. Well, and they individually had 30 agents yes. at each house. Yeah. And um, so they searched Brooks' ha- Brooks Houck's house, Nick Houck's house, and um, the Hauk family farm. Yeah. And they took away so much stuff. So much evidence. So much stuff was taken into evidence. They were there for about two days, day and a half. Mm -hmm. And then they started uh, searching the lake behind the Hauk family farm, which people Mm -hmm. in Bardstown have been saying they need to be, they need to search it forever. And, um, like... They should just drain it. I think they had divers in there, like, 24-7 for a couple of days. Okay. But obviously they haven't released if they've found anything. They took four, um, I think, I believe it was four rifles from Nick Houck's home. Mm -hmm. And, which is Brooks Houck's brother, who was a police officer in Bardstown, um, who was fired for interfering in investigation. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's been a big thing, and there are so many conspiracy theories going on, like saying that um, Nick shot himself, or that... Um, yeah, my co-worker said that. And there were neighbors who were saying that they never saw him come out of the house, that they only saw his mother come out come out yeah um that or his grandmother i can't remember if it's his mother or his grandmother thought it was the mother yeah it was the mother um and then mind-boggling after the fbi left brooks's house on the second day (sighs) he's just out there cutting his grass he's just cutting his grass like the news Every all a bunch of media people were still there, and he was just out there cutting his grass like it was nothing. Like, and the grass one wasn't even tall enough to really 
be cutting it, in my opinion. And it didn't even look like he was actually cutting it. It just looked like he was riding his mind, exactly. his riding mower around. It was very weird. Exactly. So many updates are happening all at once with this story, and it's very exciting. Um, so, and I think it might be our first unsolved case that might end up being solved soon. So, yeah. I'm very excited. <laughs> We'll just have to keep you guys up to date, and we're probably going to have to do that through social media, so we're not constantly re-recording something. Yes. I was actually thinking about posting something the other day, and I was like, I don't know. Uh, well, we hadn't posted this episode yet. I know. So. so, I think after this, if we get any, any new updates, I might start doing that, because I was scouring Twitter um, and Facebook on Thursday mm-hmm. and Friday, But yeah, that was just super cool and we wanted to update everybody. (laughs) 